Hey guys, are you getting ready for the holidays yet? Did you enjoy my conversation with Milagro Sequeira? What do your 2024 goals look like? Have you listened to all of our episodes yet? I would love, love, love to hear from you. I hear from a few people here and there, and it is always great to hear that you guys are enjoying the podcast. I always give out my email, but for the most part, I will hear from listeners through the podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and my personal LinkedIn. I never really used LinkedIn a whole lot before starting the podcast, but Lately, I have been really active on there, and it has been a great way to connect with some pros. So if you're not on LinkedIn, I recommend that you go on there because it seems to be a good way to connect with other professionals in the tennis world. I really do mean it when I say I want to hear from you. One of the reasons I do this podcast is because I have always felt that pros don't really communicate with each other. Everyone is just doing their own thing. And I have been trying to think of ways of getting more and more of our listeners to actually get connected. I have considered maybe doing some lives on social media. So maybe we can do that at some point next year. But for now, I have something else in mind. I want to hear from you. And I have an important question that I want to ask you. I want to know which episode of Vita Tennis has been your favorite in 2024. <laughs> I mean, we've only been out this year. So which episode has been your favorite this year? I will give you a shout out and read your message, or you can leave me a voicemail and I can play that voicemail here on the podcast and also give you a shout out. So make sure you include where you're currently teaching or playing. So we also give your club a shout out. Well, I'm excited to see your answers. Let's go. Today, I have a special episode for you with a fellow Tampa coach, Ed Crass. He is a legend in his own right, and I know you will enjoy hearing his story and how he developed one-on-one doubles, coaching at top colleges in the U.S., speaking at tennis conferences, how to best run events. If you know Ed, you know he always brings a ton of energy, and he's just really fun to be around. So get ready to learn from one of the best out there, only here at Vita Tennis. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Vita Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. Today, I'm excited to talk with the one and only one-on-one doubles king, Ed Crass. He is the founder and director of, you guessed it, one-on-one doubles tournaments, which is a crazy fun, unique tournament style that is sanctioned by the USDA and UTR. Ed is also the founder and director of College Tennis Exposure Camps, which is the only tennis camp taught exclusively by top head college tennis coaches. He's a USDA high performance coach and has been a speaker at the USDA, ITA, USPTA, PTR, you name it. Ed was the head coach for Harvard's women's tennis team and Clemson's men's tennis team before that. He also coached at the University of Central Florida, which is his alma mater. Welcome, Ed, to Vita Tennis. What an incredible career in tennis you've had. Thank you, Jen. It's been a great ride. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a lot of fun still when I'm staying very active, enjoying all this great tennis, you know? Amazing. So how did it all start for you? How did you get started in coaching? And was that always the plan for you when you were in college? I got started in uh, coaching back in the day. I think when I was 16, I got a chance to be an assistant uh, tennis pro at Westchester Country Club when I was playing tennis at Edgemont High. And then I got a chance to work with Harry Hopman 
at his international tennis camp in the summers when I was uh, playing for University of Central Florida. So I was able to get good experience on how to train players and give them good shot making and physical conditioning all within one live ball drill. So I got a little taste for how to get 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 good at this type of training. Uh, of course, there was a lot more to learn, but it kind of led the way for me to coaching collegiately at University of Central Florida right after I finished playing there. And would you say that you have mostly coached high-performance players or have you worked with beginners and kids and all that? When I, I used to work at a club back in uh, the uh, early 90s and back when I was coaching at, at a club. So I've had a chance to work with beginners and intermediates, and I enjoy that. But it's been mainly people that want to go on and play college tennis and college-level players. I love college tennis. I love to watch it, loved coaching it too. I loved match day. That was my favorite part. It's just the competition. That was always really fun as a coach to get to experience. But you were some top programs. What was it like to coach at some of these programs like Harvard? I mean, that's unbelievable. I'm sure that was very different from being in Florida, Central Florida and and Clemson. So can you talk a little bit about maybe how that experience was? Yeah, I mean, I had to do a little bit of a 360 as far as my mental approach to coaching the women at Harvard. It was a little bit more learning how to listen. And then when I do speak, make sure it was relevant and powerful. So I did a lot less speaking at Harvard, a lot more listening, but it did make me a lot better coach in the long run. Uh, whereas at, at uh, Clemson, when I, I was a head assistant men's coach under the legendary coach Chuck Creasy. He's like the Bobby Knight of college coaching, still ticking. And of course, it was more my way or the highway type of coaching. And, yeah. the, and, and the kids were on the scholarships and they were very much into doing whatever the coach had suggested. So at Harvard, it's more about explaining the reason why we're doing something. And that was the most motivating way of uh, teaching the, the players at Harvard how to maybe get to the next level, shall we say. And was that because... They weren't getting scholarships, or what do you think that was? Well, I think that you're dealing with a little bit maybe more intellectual uh, player that's uh, playing in the Ivy Leagues because you have so many candidates that want to go to an Ivy League school, and the ones that get in are are very well educated, and a lot of them are not they're really not on any scholarship per se. There a lot of them are paying full boat to go there, so almost like a Division three scenario. They're playing college tennis because they're going to college first, getting their academics lined up first, and social life is very important too. So if you're going to make players do something, it has to be in line with their belief system and what they want to do. Right. And I'm also sure that the recruiting process was completely different. I mean, these are all top programs, so I'm sure you got a lot of requests from players themselves, but how was that for you? And did you enjoy recruiting players? Yeah, a lot of them did come, just come to me and they wrote a, a lot of letters to me. Back then, we didn't really have the emails, but I got a lot of letters in the mail. And the ones that were handwritten were very impressive. I'll never forget getting one from a, a lady named Amy Delone. And she wrote like a four page handwritten letter and very mm -hmm. impressed when I saw her at the Nationals. I I said, yeah, she's got the type of game we could utilize. And, and she became my number one recruit. And the recruiting was, uh, it was uh, tricky, but at the same time, it wasn't that hard because you're going to be getting a, a, some of the cream of the crop already looking at, at, at a school like Harvard. 
And now it's so different. It makes me feel so old because I'm from Venezuela. So when I came here, I was actually, I, I never really planned on playing college and coming to the U.S. doing this whole thing until maybe my senior year. And I actually reached out to coaches and sent a VHS tape. <laughs> there was no YouTube when I, yeah. when I first came. So it was totally, totally different scenario than what it is now. And it's all based on ranking points, no UTR. So yeah, that landscape has changed so much. Did you have to do a lot of travel? Like, how did that work for you back in the day? Well, yeah, I, I was able to go to a couple of the national tournaments. But a lot of times it was very tricky because back then we didn't have a UTR to really nail down kind of what the kid's level would be. So they would come from all different sections around the United States, some international. It's a lot more international now, as you know. So a lot of them wanted to ask the question, Coach, where do I fit in with my SAT, my GPA, my ranking? Would you have any idea where I could fit in on your team? And that's kind of where I got the idea to start the College Tennis Academy and college tennis exposure camp was was right there at Harvard and start my business right there at Harvard. So how long have you been doing your college exposure camps? When did you start that? I started it in 1989, kind of set the seeds for the college wow. tennis academy. And in 1990 was our first official camp season where we went around the country with, with the concept of, of college tennis coaches working with junior players. Okay. Also, it's a training camp for for student athlete prospects to come in. I thought it was um, for recruiting to, to get seen by college coaches and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's a two-pronged benefit there, uh, amongst other things, where there's a head college coach on each court working with the players. And now it's turned out to be a two-day uh, training and developmental camp but it also, at the end of the day, has a great recruiting opportunity hanging as a as one of the benefits as well. Okay. And what are some of the schools these coaches represent? Just throw me some names out there of what kind of coaches we're dealing with. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We, we get a good mix of Division One, Two, and Three coaches. Like this camp that we're doing December 9th and 10th in Lakeland, we'll have Division One coaches such as Wake Forest head women's coach, Mercer University coach Eric Hayes who's been with me oh, about 35 years with the camps. We'll have Boston College head men's coach, Scott, Big Daddy Wilkins. He's going to be coming to work the camp. We have the University of West Florida, Derek, the Canadian rocker, Racine coming. He's won uh -huh. some national championships. Florida Sunshine's coach, uh, you might know Trish. We call her the hydrator because she loves keeping the camp hydrated. On the men's side, we've got Rhett Rollison. We call him Sunshine because he's got so much uh, enthusiasm and, and it's such high energy coming into a camp. He makes the kids really jump, you know? Yeah. Uh, so we got in St. Leo, we've got their head coach, who's National Co College Coach of the Year, Chad Berry Hills coming, Lins, their head women's coach, Bev, Bev Buckley's coming. And they all enjoy coaching the camp and picking up uh, players from the camp. And we, we usually get maybe 14 head coaches working each day on the court with the players and the parents can enjoy the atmosphere because we put on a little bit of rock and roll and make the make it a lot of fun where winners are moving up and and those learners are moving down but hey we always keep the score and yeah. tell those kids check your ego at the door that's awesome and how long do the camps last it's two two full days and they have to come in with their parent or, or their co co private coach 
and they stay at a hotel. And we work all day with them in live ball drill situations, as well as college team style matches. That's really good. I'm sure that's a great experience for someone that wants to play college, just kind of the networking and getting to train similar to what they would be doing once they go to college. So that's that's awesome. I wish I had something like that when I was <laughs> when yeah. I was in high school. <laughs> I know a lot of coaches tell me the same thing, you know? I'm sure. And one-on-one doubles, how did you come up with that whole concept? Yeah, like let's just talk about that. How you develop that? I mean, that's did that start from a drill that you like to do? Because maybe you can also explain just in case somebody doesn't understand what one-on-one doubles is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so in 2004, I, I came up with the idea to run these one-on-one doubles tournaments. And really, I took it from an old drill that people used to play, cross-court, serve and volley, with the alley included. And I learned it from Coach Creasy at Clemson. We did it for practice sets to get the kids ready to play serve and volley doubles. And boy, it worked so well there. We had four teams, Jen, ranked in the top 30 in Division One, And I accredited a lot of it to the one-on-one doubles practice sets they were playing, you know? And then when I took it over to Harvard to work with the women, uh, we played a lot of one-on-one doubles and it really helped them with their serve and volley doubles to the extent that we were one of the only women's team serving in volley and on both first and second serve. Yeah. And so I would have to say we dabbled in it for 10 years at our camp, but then I thought, why not make it into a serious four-hour tournament and get the USTA behind it and sanction. And they said, hey, we love the idea. We'll sanction it right away. And then maybe can you explain how it works? Sure. So one-on-one doubles is the cross-court serve and volley singles game with the alley included. Players have to serve and volley on both first and second serve or they lose the point. Half volleys are allowed. So it really does promote the serve and volley. And then the returner can stay back or come in based on what he or she wants to do. And then all players are uh, awarded a two-point bonus for the winning volley and overhead that's hit out of the air that the opponent cannot touch. So that's a two-point bonus that the players are getting now for putting a volley or overhead away, Jen. Is that a new rule, by the way, the the two-point rule? So uh, It's about three or four years uh, old now. And uh, I thought it would be kind of cool to add that in. And some of the some former ATP pros had given me some of these ideas, you know. OK, yeah, that makes it I think that makes it a little bit tougher uh, for sure. I mean, those, you know, a point that counts is two. That that's a big game changer right there. But it's a really fun concept. I actually my husband played in a tournament and that's when I first kind of learned about it. And then I became kind of obsessed with doing that as a drill. When I was coaching college, I had my girls do that drill all the time, because like you said, it's so good at getting you comfortable coming to the net, serving in volley, something that definitely juniors and college players do not tend to do. Right. So I think as a drill itself, it's brilliant. And yeah, I think everyone should be doing that even if it's not on a tournament base, but even just to use it for your players. I think it's a it's a great way to improve. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I fell in love with it. And we kind of, you know, wanted to keep celebrating this game. And we've always had some good live music with the events or we'll have a DJ there to 
to make it a fun atmosphere because it is a little bit of pressure having to serve and volley, you know? Especially if you're not used to that, if you're used to playing singles and just being a baseline banger, it's completely out of your box. <laughs> so it's it's great. How big are your draws usually? The draws, let's see. I tell you, during COVID, we had the biggest draw we've ever had with 79 players, eight, wow. not 80 players. And of course, we had a mix of open, 40 and over, and 60 and over. So that was the biggest we've ever had. I would say most of the draws, if we were to run just an open, is usually between 20 to 30 players. They're pretty high-level players at play because of the technical aspects of serving and volleying and attacking the net. You're not going to get just any player to want to sign up and play. But the ones that are truly serious about getting their game to the next level and that feel that they're pretty good at it, those are the ones that are going to enjoy playing and signing up. Yeah, and you kind of take this all over the country. I know, I, I, I think I saw you were even at the U.S. Open. Yes, yeah, so we've had so many great events, over 150 of them since we started. And I would say some of our best events in 2008 and 2009 was at an ATP tournament in Sunrise. And we had a 32 draw, many ATP players playing. And the finals was played on stadium court. And so you have players that were top 30, 40, 50 in the world playing there, Jen. Wow. And that was really nice. And I would say we had four events at the home of the U.S. Open, which the USTA Billie Jean King Ten National Tennis Center sponsored. And those were really nice events at their indoor tennis center. And I'll tell you, the Wimbledon doubles champion named Jared Palmer uh, won one of the events in 2009. So that was exciting. And you get a lot of good high-level college players jumping in yeah. and some former ATP players as well. Yeah, I'm sure the the prize money is an extra little motivator there for sure. Was yeah. it always uh, a prized event? How did you start it? Well, I started it in 2004 at Hunter's Green Country Club, three events here in Tampa. And we put a little bit of prize money in there, not as much, I think maybe 500 to the winner. And the first player that signed up wrote me a two-page letter from, I think he was coming from Arkansas. His name was Peter Duhan. And Peter Duhan, Jen, was the guy who upset Boris Becker at Wimbledon in 1989, I believe. Oh. And I met him at a national doubles tournament in Savannah, and, and I gave him one of my flyers, and he, and he says, Ed, I can't believe you're running. He goes, I'm so excited. I'm coming all the way from Arkansas. So I, I, wrote, I told the, the newspaper about it, and they wrote a front-page article about the event. And I said, I'm really on to something here because he's coming. We're going to get a whole bunch more coming, you know. And how does one go about doing something like you just did? I mean, you started something brand new and you got money for players. How did you start getting more and more prize money? Is it all through sponsors? How did that work out? Yeah, usually it's getting the excitement of the tennis community where they where they have the you know they put up uh, their a little bit of money on their end for their represent their business and so as you know sponsorships it's a two-way uh, benefit there where they can also advertise their business uh some individuals will make donations to to advance the game of tennis through one-on-one -on -one doubles but mainly it's it's small businesses will sponsor one-on-one -on -one doubles tournaments at different clubs around the east coast and we've had some on the West Coast, but mainly East Coast. 
yeah, you, you're kind of all over. Do you get requested or are you kind of like reaching out to places? How do you go about that? Well, you know, in the beginning, it was more reaching out to places where you have to hustle to get your venues and your players, this type of thing. But as it started getting more popular, I started fielding a lot more interest emails, Jen, and phone calls from different directors that run clubs and even college coaches wanting to host events. I just got off the phone with a coach that wants to host an event in the summer. And we're also going to be hosting some more events on college campuses. So I think the college campus is a great venue because I think that's where they're playing most one-on-one doubles is on college campuses. And are you at all the events or do you just kind of let somebody else run them? Well, it's a combination. It depends on what the venue wants. If, if some of them feel comfortable running a, an event on their own, that works great. But a lot of times they want me there with my megaphone and and yeah. jazzing it up with all the music and helping them promote it and market it. But it, it, it's, it, it can grow on its own organically with other coaches who have a passion to run a format like one-on-one doubles. You definitely bring a lot of energy to the event and you obviously can see your passion about the event just because how much you pump everybody up and how you do your introductions of the players. I think that's a, a very special little nugget that maybe it definitely would be missing, right? If you weren't there. So it's always fun to see. I've been now to a couple and it's so fun. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, and that's one of the reasons I started the one-on-one doubles. I thought it would be an opportunity to gel the tennis community together more and give some love and respect to everybody and let them all feel comfortable coming and playing this, what I call this third game of tennis, one-on-one doubles. Yeah, they're all so fun and so well ran. So congratulations to you on, on all that. What do you think is key to running such a smooth and successful event just as advice to tennis directors or tennis pros that are running events and not necessarily one-on-one doubles, but obviously we're all doing that through our clubs? Yeah, I think getting good marketing promotions behind it, designing a nice flyer, spending a little extra money to market an event, letting everybody know through uh, your email program, also your uh, social media. I think you're uh, making posters, getting people excited about it, talking to players, uh, texting players. It is uh, calling people. It's a full-time job promoting a tournament, yet alone running one. So I can see why a lot of tennis pros that are so busy making money with their programs and lessons, if they're not really into running a tournament at least once a year, then it's going to be a lot of extra work for somebody who's never had experience with it. So I would say learn under somebody who's had experience running a a big event or tournament, and then you grow from there if you get some good mentorship, you know? I agree. I think marketing, communication, that's all super, super important. And then I really like, like I was saying, how you make everyone feel excited during the event and welcoming everybody in. I feel like you know everybody. And even if you don't, you act like you do. <laughs> you yeah, know, you, know, you got to study the people's background. You know, a lot of these people that come in, they all have good background playing tennis. And I think they have, if you if study their background and you give them a little uh, respect, that megaphone really does help. I mean, a lot of coaches don't feel comfortable using one it's like a football coach does because you have more area and more players to talk to but 
or having a PA system really helps add to it. But tennis has been a little stodgy in the way where you put the two players on the court and that's it, give them a can of balls, and that's that. I think we got to give the players a little more respect than that and and get the fans into it a little more. That's such a good point because you go to a tennis tournament and unless it's someone that you love, you know, someone in your family or whatever that's playing and you're going to go to their core and sit down there for a couple hours and just kind of watch them play is it's not necessarily the most inviting and engaging situation for people, especially if the parents or friends or whoever it is are not tennis players. So I think that that's another piece that coaches can learn from you and the way that you run these events is just kind of witnessing how you're constantly engaging the the spectators, right? You make it a spectator event. It's not just a player event. So I think that I think that's really, really special. Was that your intention when you kind of created it this way? No, I think it kind of evolved over the years to become a little bit more entertainment, shall we say, uh, yeah. for the for the spectators. Uh, you know, with a little bit of the live music. My music background has been rock and roll and blues, and I always felt like the music could loosen up the the, the tennis uh, part of it because. It's been so quiet, please, for, I don't know, since 1870, Jen. And then I asked myself, well, who said everybody had to be so quiet? <laughs> and somebody said some French guy in 1870, and he's <laughs> not around anymore, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I like to say the silence is lifted and our game is gifted, you know? Yeah. And do you ever get complaints of, oh, it's too loud, it's too noisy, or anything like that? Not really. We just have a good band playing for maybe the first couple hours during the round robin. And people know about it because we advertise we're going to have a live band. But if it's going to be at an ATP tournament or WTA or or maybe a bigger event for television, which we've had eight of them, we don't play any music right uh, during the matches if they're televised. But we'll have a live concert, maybe uh, celebrate the event afterwards, Jen. That's so cool. And then... I didn't realize that you have presented at so many different conventions and things like that. What were you presenting about? Was that about college? What were kind of the topics that, that you were covering? Well, I, a lot of it was our governing body of college tennis is the Intercollegiate Tennis Association. And I've been a member of them since 1986 or 85. So I, I've used to speak at some of these conventions about promoting college tennis and also on court about how to become a better coach on court and, you know, share some of your secrets like coaches do about yeah. how to improve your singles and your doubles and, and then one-on-one -on -one double skills. So all of a sudden, I think it was in 2004, I had about 16 coaches sneak on the court and we played one-on-one -on -one doubles at a convention because there was nothing going on. And uh, they got wind of, that we had a very successful tournament and they asked me right there and then, would I like to run the tournament next year officially? And so we did about 15 years in a row of college coaches, one-on-one -on -one doubles tournaments with prize money. So right. that's how that got started. And so the college coaches all started to say, wow, we're going to make this an official format for tennis. Let's play ourselves and let's try to win some money and have fun with it. Do you have any tips for anyone that, is wanting to get better at one-on-one -on -one doubles? Yes, I would say uh, definitely practice about 15 minutes of, 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 of mid-court volleys, right a little about a foot behind the, the service line, 
and, you know, go cross court and work on those shoeshine midcourt volleys, half volleys, low volleys, and get that continental slice volley going and, that, and learn how to adjust a little bit of the grips for the half volleys. And then as you get good at those low volleys, coming forward is uh, a little bit easier because as you're closer to the net, we know it's more of a party up there. But those mid-court volleys is really where we got to get the foundation of confidence. And then after that, they can work on serving right around a little behind that service line, maybe about five feet behind the service line, serve from there, and then come up and make that first volley. So there's progressions of one-on-one doubles. You don't have to do the whole program, Jen, because it gets a little scary in the beginning for some players. But at our camps, we'll have them serve maybe from five feet behind the service line, and, and the returner will hit it and come in. And that, that server will be right there as well to make the volley. So there's progressions they have to learn before they play the whole game. You know? Yeah, those are those are great pointers. And I think for some players, I mean, I think if they've played competitively, it's easier. But if it's a recreational player, I think the hardest thing for them is definitely, well, one, finishing the serve and not just rushing in. Right, finish the serve and then kind of run in. And then the split step, I think it's so hard sometimes for people to recreational players, right? To like learn how to time. So I think that, you know, this is like the best practice you can do to 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 really work on that. Oh yeah. I mean, with the two-point play, the recreational players will be in in incentivized to get to the net and volley that ball. Yeah. Uh now whether or not they're serving and volleying is up to their coach and or who's running that particular practice clinic or tournament. But it's been real serve and volley oriented with this game. It kind of makes it more exciting than just staying back and anybody can kind of hit that backcourt back and forth. Right. And then kind of going back to how you've presented at all these different places, do you have any advice for pros about presenting? Why should they consider it or any tips? Sure. I would say if you have a good concept or a good talk that you would like to give at one of these conventions, usually the convention would want to have a nice letter from you or an outline about how you're going to cover the presentation and then information about where you have presented this information, this topic before. Do you have any experience speaking they're going to want to know that as well. So sometimes you just have to, you know, kind of sell yourself as to how, you know, how good your talk's going to be. And then, of course, what type of experience you bring to the table, because a lot of times they don't want to take a, a chance on somebody who doesn't have any experience speaking. Sure. So yet some people have to start somewhere. So, so a lot of times they can be recommended by other coaches that they're very good speakers, even if they have no experience, they can sometimes have an opportunity to present their material in front of all those other coaches. Yeah. Is it similar at all? I mean, I've never spoken at any conference or anything like that, but would you say it's kind of similar to when you're teaching? Uh, it's different because you have a group of coaches that are pretty well-versed in all aspects of tennis. Yeah. So it, it has a combination of some teaching elements and some entertainment elements, public speaking elements, and uh, it's some. And when you can do all that, that makes you a much better, I think, professional in the long run. 
What has been your favorite part of coaching at either college or wherever? What has been your favorite part as a tennis professional? I would say some memories that I've had was helping develop the team at Clemson with their double skills and their quick volley skills and seeing how good they became. And, And they came almost a few points from winning the national title. We lost to Stanford in the quarters in front of about 7,000 people at the University of Georgia on those courts there. And I think that was a great experience that I had, you know, coaching the teams at Harvard and getting to the ITA national indoors and winning some big matches. I think we beat University of Wisconsin was great. I I remember losing to UCLA out there. It was a nice experience. You know, so you have all these, I think coaching world team tennis in 1991 was a fantastic experience for me, it was, we played in a stadium that held 20,000 people and we would get wow. about seven or 8,000 at the matches. And boy, that was a lot of pressure because world team tennis was two guys, two gals, and that was getting the team ready. Yeah. And of course, we had top players that were top 50 in the world singles and doubles playing for us. So I've had a lot of great experiences coaching, but then running the camps as well as these one-on-one doubles tournaments. They all have special experiences and you have great memories from them. And if I keep taking my fish oil every day, my brain will stay well connected to enjoy (laughs) those experiences. Yeah, I remember World Team Tennis. I played it recreationally after I graduated from college. And that was a really different format and it was really fun. Why do you think that World (laughs) Team Tennis kind of disappeared. I don't know. I don't know what happened to it. Well, it's still going, Jen. It was, I believe it was on, I think it might've been on ESPN COVID and it was home of the most exciting tennis or CBS sports network. And they do have their own television deal. I believe this year, I think it goes on just in September to the end of September but you don't hear as much about it as you used to, but I think it's still a great thing. We'd have to study it a little bit online and see how many teams are playing now. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I haven't heard about World Team Tennis in such a long time, but it's such a cool concept to have te- professional tennis be played as a team sport. That alone, I think it's uh, it's a great concept. Very different from what professional tennis looks like, obviously, but I just, I wish it, it had a little bit more success. Maybe it needs to get better marketed. I I mean, they've been doing it for about 35 years. It's Billie Jean King's league. I think she's done really well with it. And it's just, I think it's, it's mainly captures one month out of the professional tennis season, but they've been getting some pretty big names and some years are bigger than others. So it's tough to, to make it fit into the, into the realm of all of professional tennis. And I think, She's done as, as good as anybody could potentially do with something like that. Uh, I, I love my experience that one year I did. That's awesome. And now this is kind of a, it, it can be considered, I guess, a loaded question I've been told, but it doesn't have to be that serious. But are there, you know, you've seen it all. I mean, you, you've had such a long career in tennis and you have experienced a bunch of different things in the tennis industry from coaching college to running events to being world team tennis. You've dealt with coaches. Is there anything that in the years that you have done this that you would like to maybe see change for the future of the tennis coaching industry? Well, I tell you, 
as you know, and you had Ann Grossman on a little bit ago when I watched her. She talked about oh, yeah. how, how cutthroat it is out there with coaches. And that's one of the reasons I started the college tennis exposure camp is to allow coaches from Division One, Two, II, and Three, NAIA, junior college, to all socialize together and, and grow the game together. And I see more opportunity like the USPTA allows co- coaches to come together, teachers, and kind of brainstorm ideas and grow the game together that way. The professional tennis registry does the same thing. So I think if we can have more of these type of opportunities for coaches to learn from each other, maybe once a month have a get-together with coaches in certain towns like Tampa. We don't have this anymore, but maybe you have a lunch. USPTA may be doing this in certain districts, but I don't hear about it too much. Maybe a lunch once a month or, or every three months with all the pros in the club and the area. Get yeah. together and brainstorm ideas. This type of thing would help grow tennis tremendously. Yeah, I think everyone everyone now is so busy. <laughs> you know, it's like we're all, everything's online now. So that's kind of why I'm doing this. So at least we have, you know, something. <laughs> oh, it's fabulous. And, and I like I like your reasoning behind it too. It's fabulous. Thank you. And then, Ed, before you go, I want to ask you, what has been the Grand Slam moment and the double bagel moment of your career? <laughs> I would say one of the highs has been, you know, running a, a one-on-one doubles tournament at, a, at an ATP tournament and also at a USTA Women's Challenger where, a, you know, a French Open semifinalist lady played and wow. and, won, and won it. I, I would say that was really exciting, having one-on-one doubles at, at, at that high level yeah. and putting that tape down the middle of the court where that's kind of like our patent there. So that's that was really exciting. Kind of seeing the pinnacle of the game keep growing, that's been super exciting. The bagel part, you know, that, that could have been my first year coaching at Harvard where you know, you don't, you don't get the respect of some of the players and you only get their anger and irie and because they don't want to agree with anything you say. And that, that made me feel a little crummy because it was the, the critical part of coaching on their end made the job a little unenjoyable that first year at Harvard. But then, you know, you can learn to get tough skin. Yeah. Not everybody's going to receive you the way you want to be received, you know? Yeah. So, that can happen for any tennis professional or tennis director where you're not being well received by a certain few individuals and they make your job awful tough. And mm-hmm. that they're always in your head, those negative comments, or even though they may have no validity at all, it's that negative criticism by a few and ruin it for a coach if they let it. Yeah. How did you, get to the other side of, of that? Well, a lot of it is, is, is doing what you believe is the right thing to do and just communicating with the people that, that are on your team. And, you know, some of the people that are not on your team that, that you have to, you have to try to win them over at some point. And that first year at Harvard was, was difficult. I think a few of the girls didn't uh, see eye to eye with what I was trying to do, you know, challenge matches, maybe too much pressure. They, they thought uh, running them to the airport by mistake might have been too too much. And then playing challenge matches after that run to the airport might have been too much. Uh, the, and the, the match the match scores came out lopsided. So that might have been too much. And yeah. so you learn. So you learn, you know, and yeah. 
thank God the support was there from the athletic administration. And at the end of the year, we won the Ivy League title and the dust settled, you know? That's good that you had that support. That's so important. And yeah, the reason I asked that question is because I think sometimes those are the moments that we learn from the most. Uh, and earlier on, you were talking about how much you learned from coaching at Harvard, a different type of, definitely a different type of student athlete. So I'm sure that that made you a better coach in the long run, right? Because now you are able to connect with and coach a different type of player that's not used to being coached a certain way, like, you know, just doing whatever the coach tells them to do. <laughs> yes. And I think that's the, that's the climate we're dealing with now in college tennis, whether it be division one, two or three scholarship right. or no scholarship, Jen, I think the climate has changed where the power has shifted more to the player. And so the coach has to be very respectful and mind and mindful that that player is very important and their perception and their beliefs are, are important too. So it's not so much my way or the highway you've got to really uh, coexist with the player and they have to respect you as a person and as a coach. So it's, it's gotten to be a more difficult job these days. I see that even at the junior level, sometimes you have to explain more, a lot more than you used to right, to the parents and to the player as well. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it as part of, the evolution, right, of, I don't know, just how everything has changed, not just in the coaching world, but just in general, different generations, right? But yeah, I definitely, definitely see that at all ages. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the parents are a big part of this process and they need to be, they need to be praised as well because if it wasn't for the parents, the kids would not be where they're at today. Mm -hmm. And I forgot to ask you this earlier, I wanted to see if you had any advice for coaches that are working with high school players, how they can maybe help them go and play college tennis, because I think there's something missing with the the high school coach or not, or not necessarily the coach for the high school team, but the that age group, right? High school age players, whoever their coaches, I don't see them a lot of the time getting involved in the college recruiting process or like helping out the student athlete. Um, I don't know if you've had a different experience, but that's definitely what I have seen. So I don't know if you have any advice. Yes. I mean, a lot of high school coaches or a lot of them are, are high, maybe high school professors uh, that are maybe paid a little extra to to manage the team, coach the team, and they don't have a lot of coaching experience. Then some of these high schools will reach out and they will get an, an experienced tennis coach. So a lot of it is uh, by chance what type of coach that high school is going to hire. But I think that that high school tennis coaching experience can be a great thing for these kids to prepare for college tennis. And if, and I think there's a big gap between the high school coach and their teaching professional yeah. coaching those kids. So I think there needs to be a meeting with those two, the teaching pro and the high school coach, on how that kid's going to best uh, represent the high school and how these how these parties can work together and all come together to help that kid become the best player they can be. And then that's why I kind of created my college tennis exposure camp. So those high school kids can come and get to train with those co uh, college coaches. Now I, I, we charge $8.95 for the camp, but think about the opportunity and how much it costs to play college tennis. Well, the kids travel from tournament to tournament to tournament, and yeah. they spend a lot of money doing that. 
and sometimes they need to stop and smell the coffee and see what they've been working towards. There's a lot of college placement services that charge 5000 to 8000 to 10000 to try to help their kid get placed. Well, the parent has to start saving up a lot of money. Maybe the parent's got enough to pay 70000 a year. They got to get the best college they can get academically for their kid, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But I always felt like my camp was a great investment for the kid's future. And that's kind of why we keep going, because a lot of the coaches help uh, network those kids into different colleges. Yeah. When is your when is your next camp? And you're welcome to come, Jen. It's December 9th and 10th at the Beerman Family Tennis Center in Lakeland between Tampa and Orlando. Very cool. And is that on the same website as, or is it a different website? For the- uh, yeah, the website for that is collegetennis.com. Okay. And we got that in 1995 when the website wow. came in. I was going to say, how did you get that? <laughs> yeah, right. Isn't that nice? So that's collegetennis.com. And that's our college tennis exposure camp. And the one-on-one doubles tournaments, one-on-one doubles.com. Yeah. Okay, Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Ed, for talking with us today. And best of luck with the college camps, the one-on-one doubles, all the great stuff that you're doing. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoy talking to you, Jen. It's been my, you've been my favorite host of all the podcasts. I've had some <laughs> good podcasts, but there's some other great ones too. But you, you, you've been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Ed. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Vita Tennis. I really hope that you're enjoying these episodes. And if you are, which I think you are, let me know by leaving a review on the platform you're tuning in from. That would be absolutely amazing. You can always reach out to me at vitatennispodcast at gmail.com if you have any specific questions, comments, or if you just want to say hi. Remember, I want to give you a shout out. So send me a message or a voice message through our site answering which episode of Vita Tennis has been your favorite in 2024. I wish you all the best and I cannot wait for you to see what is next here at Vita Tennis. We have some really fun stuff coming up real soon. I will see you next week for another episode of Vita Tennis.